here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book per year of the 20th century. Today's book is a play, The Designated Mourner by Wallace Shawn from 1997. We've also got a guest. Uh, John Cotter is joining us to talk about this one. He actually directed the play and performed in it many times in a kind of special way that he's going to describe in our conversation. He also wrote about that experience in his memoir, Losing Music, which will be published by Milkweed Editions. Um, and one more book that we want to mention is uh, Lure Bleu, or The Judy Poems, by um, our former guest and friend of the podcast, Elisa Gabbert. Um, she played Judy in those performances that John was directing and wrote this book of poems in the voice of that character. Um, that came out in 2016 from Black Ocean Books and is wonderful. Um, the start of this recording, we're going to play for you a special because um, we were start sort of before we started recording, we were talking about the book. John was describing the end of the play and how everything comes together. Um, it was so interesting that Sandy covertly hit the record button. Um, so you're going to hear some of John's descriptions of the plot. They're really good. Um, I'll give you a thinner outline first. The play features three characters, Howard, an aging intellectual, his daughter Judy, and Judy's partner Jack. And the three of them are living through some not entirely specific kind of political upheaval in their unnamed country. Um, the play itself doesn't show the action, but these characters give these um, fragmentary descriptions of what has happened and is happening, and they often disagree with each other, talk to each other, change their own perspectives. Um, it works. It works. Um, all right. Uh, now you can hear some of John's description and our conversation. You know, they would they would put people in these very strange chairs where their heads were in this very unusual position, this very odd angle in this kind of ceremony. And one of the people being executed was Judy. And Jack is lost. He doesn't know where he is anymore. He, he tries to look at these porn magazines that he was involved in with all these, these playful young women with their beautiful tricks and games, but they seem very hollow to him. And there's an advertisement in one of the magazines that says, have you ever ridden on the train that carried the bodies of the dead? I have. Call this number. Let's talk. He goes for a walk out into the park. They've planted a new grove. It's really not a bad time, this new authoritarian regime. It's really not a bad time because there's all this international investment and all these cheap consumer goods and some people are doing very well indeed. And Jack goes to this little cafe and he orders a cup of tea and it comes with a little steak, a little cake, a little sticky cake. And he realizes to himself that the last person to understand and appreciate John Donne is gone. That John Donne is dead. And that he can't be sorry. And, you know, he's sorry, Howard. He's sorry about Howard's trees. He's sorry about Howard's string of lights. And he's sorry, Judy. And he wishes he'd been better. But, you know, the sun is still, it comes up in the morning. And there's still a breeze in the air. And they're having a parade later tonight with including a bunch of young dogs, some of the new breeds, some of them for sale. And he decides to have a funeral because in certain customs among certain tribes, there's this, well, there's this ritual where if the last member of a tribe or a family has died and no one knows them well, you're appointed to mourn them. 
And so he takes the little paper that the cake was in and he sets fire to it and it burns there on the ashtray. And he says a prayer for Howard and for John Donne plummeting to hell. He thought he was immortal. (laughs) And as he sits there in the park bench, he enjoys one of the sweetest pleasures that we can know in this life. The gentle, ever-changing caress of an early evening breeze. Thank you, John. Sure. <laughs> so, John, you directed this play. You've acted in this play. You have a deep, long familiarity and intimacy with this play. When did that happen? How did that happen in your own life? Well, I read the play when it came out back in 1996. And it's a, it's a different play now, you know, than it was then. I was talking with my friend Aaron, and we both had histories in the theater, but we weren't in the theater anymore. We didn't do theater anymore. And we're both such Andre Gregory fanboys. You know, Andre Gregory, the director who was uh, featured in Wallace Shawn's My Dinner with Andre. And we were talking about how Andre Gregory used to direct plays for a whole year. And uh, he would rehearse plays for a whole year and uh, before anyone saw them. And we thought that this was, you know, this crazy thing to do, but we wanted to try it. And we both loved the designated mourners. We thought, well, let's, you know, let's rehearse it for a whole year. And that's, you know, that's a truism in the theater. You know, you either rehearse a play for, you know, six days or six months. You know, it's like cooking calamari. You either do it, you know, for not much time or you really have to break it down. And uh, it was a very interesting experience because... You know, when you study theater in the, I studied theater in the 90s, and when you study theater in the 90s, you hear a lot about ritual, this idea about, you know, theater is a ritual. And when you're a kid, you know, uh, you don't have great associations with rituals. You know, you think, well, ritual is some boring church service or ritual is some graduation. But as I, as I started reading the play again in, in 2013, it really came to me that this play is a ritual, that this could be a wonderful vehicle for this idea of ritual, because the play's a funeral. You know, the whole play is one funeral for, not just for John Donne, but for Judy and Howard, and for, as Judy says, the idea of a better world. And, you know, in fact, Judy says in the middle of the play, like right at the center of the play, Judy says, you know, Jack, people cry at funerals. And he says, I know that. And she says, Jack, people cry at funerals. You know, because instead of simply, you know, instead of mourning simply, this designated mourner is having this elaborate um, agon, this, this elaborate argument with the people he's mourning. And and we thought uh, a fun way to do the play would be to sort of parasite off another kind of ritual. So we thought of the ritual of just having people over for drinks, where you pour drinks and you put out some nuts and you tell your stories and they tell their stories and you get to know them. And so we thought, well, instead of doing the play on a stage, because it's hard to get people into a theater. And I mean, Denver's not a theater city. And, you know, people get bored in the theater. Um, we thought we'll just do the play in people's houses. And we'll do it like we're going over for drinks. And we'll put out nuts and drinks and we'll, we'll eat some of the nuts and have a sip of the drinks. And then the play will just sort of begin. And watching the characters argue will be like watching uh, a couple have a fight that you invited to your house for drinks. 
and you have this sort of sicko interest in uh, in how it develops, and uh, and we thought that this could get to people in a very intimate place because here we are in their space and here we are performing this ritual and they're uh, completely vulnerable to what the play, you know, could do to them. So which character were you? I was Howard. I hadn't meant to be Howard. I hadn't meant to be any character at all. We, I'm not sure we, Howard meant to be Howard either. I don't know. Who else could Howard be? <laughs> Well, okay. I mean, we could talk about the essential nature of the characters. Um, do you have a, a picture of what of what Howard's essential nature is? Like, like to just describe maybe to people who haven't read the play or who maybe are just curious of your interpretation since you've inhabited him a lot? Well, he was a ruling class intellectual who rebelled a little bit and he became kind of a drawing room Marxist. Uh, but he lives in a very reactionary country, and so he had to be extremely ginger about his, his views to get along with everybody, you know? Because um, his comfortable life as an intellectual and as a poet was as important to him as any revolutionary ideas that he might have entertained. Don't you think? I mean, is that how you would describe Howard? Well, so I'm going to go a little bit on a tangent to describe the character and, and sort of ask you if you see this as where the play is or just where the character is that there's this, um, this kind of uh, assertion of innocence around Howard that doesn't stand up to me in our current time. And the, um, at some point he, he makes this speech where he's just like, you know, I like poetry. Everyone else likes TV. Um, I can say revolutionary things in my poetry, knowing that no one will actually read it and they won't understand it if they do. Um, I'm just simply highbrow a person and that's why everyone hates me. Um, <laughs> and there's more of them. So inevitably they're going to come and kill me sometime. And there's this sense of um, I, the line between highbrow and lowbrow in his perception. And that's something that later Jack is, Jack critiques that by saying, Oh, I saw him play laughing at a play that was um, snide and not yeah. sophisticated. Um, it, like, so, so there's some, some question about whether any line between highbrow and lowbrow is worth maintaining, mm -hmm. but especially in our time right now, mm -hmm. um, like right after reading um, this uh, Jennifer Barnett uh, essay about um, leaving her career, for instance, in um, highbrow journalism because of how the, how the gatekeeping operates. It's like, it's, yeah. there's so much violence, not metaphorical violence. Some of it mm -hmm. is financial violence and some of it is just incredibly literal violence yeah. in how the line between highbrow and lowbrow is policed yeah. that Howard's perception of himself as someone who's just naturally smarter and cooler than other people and that they hate him just because they don't understand how big and important his brain is. Um, it feels like a very weaponized form of innocence 
Mm-hmm. Um, because it's also the innocence that allows, it allows all the worst people to land on their feet. But, um, and to, you know, say like, oh, it was cancel culture tried to get me. Oh, no. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like, it's never time to think about the violence that is involved in policing who gets mm-hmm. to think of themselves as an intellectual and who doesn't. Yeah, I mean, when I think about Howard, I think about Borges in Argentina, you know, in the middle of the dirty wars, in the middle of the death squad, sitting up there in his library, just, you know, reading Chesterton and writing stories about it. And maybe, I don't know that, I I, I, I know that that's what the play wants us to think of, but Mm -hmm. I also think of the... um, uh, Nicole Krauss story. Hang on. I have the title here. Uh, from the desk of, uh, Daniel Varsky. It's the mm-hmm. beginning. It's from 2007. It's the beginning of her, uh, great house novel, um, where it's a New York writer who is jealous of a Chilean writer who will mm-hmm. go on to be murdered. You know, <laughs> Um, and she's jealous that he has this something real to write about and like real threat to his safety over what he's saying. Um, and I think that there is this feeling of like that the play wishes that these people were actually in danger from people who watch TV. Oh, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, that's that's actually um, that's that's completely what I saw in it, and as a flaw in the play, basically. Like, I, I actually mm-hmm. saw this play um, with Wallace Shawn in it. Weird, you know, which is kind of strange because I don't go to the theater that often, and it was wonderful. And I took it took it all in and just just soaked it up mm-hmm. and really loved it. But on the page, I thought about it very differently, and and also having read mm-hmm. a lot more of of Sean's work in the interim and, and seen where his focus is and how his focus kind of limits the meaning of it's, it's odd. Like he's very focused on the kind of moral conflicts of the politics of upper class people, mm-hmm. but in a way that makes those, those conflicts really meaningless because it, the, in this play, there is one poor person, and that poor person is just somebody who Howard picks up off the street to sleep with, mm-hmm. and she revolutionizes him through means who, which are really kind of left vague and unspecified. There is never any mention of violence to the poor yeah. in the play. It's just yeah. it's just completely erased, so that it's it's not really meaningful, and and the entire moral struggle is really. It only takes on any kind of shape, any kind of form that we can imagine and picture when we're talking about whether or not people like John Donne. And really, it's it's just simply not convincing that a political change would cause fewer people to be able to appreciate the poetry of John Donne. That's just mm-hmm. a completely made up thing. It's a way for for the the voice of the play to to frame a certain group of people who are actually very privileged and not necessarily in danger the Borgeses of this world 
as the victims of the mm-hmm. revolution when they absolutely are not. And it's not even very credible that somebody who wrote a few revolutionary essays decades ago would become a focus of, of terror. And the line between Jack and Judy there doesn't make any sense. If, if Judy were going to become a victim, then Jack also would be a victim. There's, there's no reason that Jack, just because he feels something different, would not be a victim. And of course, that, that is the side of the play that's a little bit surreal. You know, it's not set in a real place. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly a Latin American um, regime that's undergoing these changes. It's also partly New York City. But, but at the same time, like that, you can see like where he creates that surreal element is in order to have the fantasy that Catherine was talking about of being mm-hmm. the martyr of the revolution, or of being the martyr of the fascist revolution specifically. The kind of erasure that we're talking about is the erasure of the experiences of the working classes who are the subject of the political struggle in the play. So like specifically within the terms of the play, that's a kind of an absence that would be notable, even if you didn't know anything about society except for what you had gotten from the play itself. Mm-hmm. Well, or even, so, okay, like I was just, I was thinking about like the desk with the button that locks the door from the inside. Um, like in all of the, the Me Too scandals, it's just like one detail that, that came to mind. And it's like, this is the same set of people that Wallace Shawn is talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, like these, mm-hmm. this is not the distant violence against the working class. This is very literally the line between who's allowed to join this group and who is not. Mm-hmm. Like who is seen as kind of disposable or expendable by these exact people. Mm-hmm. Um, and of their own, you know, among their own in a sense. So um, we, could, we could say, if, if we wanted to, if we wanted to devil's advocate and, and try to be sympathetic to Sean's intentions, if we wanted mm-hmm. to, we needn't. But if we wanted to, we could say, well, you know, he's thinking about the New York theater going audience of 1996, right? The audience that's going to see uh, Martin McDonough play where people are pulling each other's eyeballs out on Monday. And they're going to see the vagina monologues on Tuesday. And then they're going to see, you know, some, uh, uh, um, and Bogart, some kind of uh, exaggerated movement show on Thursday. None of these are extremely, uh, you know, class conscious, politically committed plays. And then on, on Friday, they're going to go to this play. And what he's trying to do is point a finger at them and say, this is your story, too. Now, by doing that, you're right. He elides the actual working class story that is at the center of that, that is the center of that reality. But I think he is trying to point a finger at them to some extent. He is trying to say you're complicit. Well, sort of, but I think that I don't know that the play ever really argues with the idea that people are killing them because they're too smart and cool and um, (laughs) that they're just mad because they like TV and that people who like TV inherently hate people who like poetry um, and there's more of them than, quote, us. Mm. And that, I think, is like, I, I didn't see anyone... I didn't see a view within the play that made me think that the play was arguing with that. Um, And I think that that perspective of like, Oh, well um, they're just angry because they hate our freedom, you know, is that's like a really (laughs) very harmful way of, of thinking. And it causes a huge amount of damage. 
but it's like a very powerful, stay powerful way of thinking. Mm. I'd say like just to, just to go back and, uh, and defend Sean. Um, I, I think that within the play and with, within his work, you don't get sympathetic characters. So it's not like there's anybody in the play exactly who's supposed to be the, the voice of us, you know, who we're supposed to identify with. I think we're supposed to be looking for someone to identify with and keep to keep being shoved out by them, being too loathsome to actually identify with. And that's sort of true. I mean, probably to the least extent of Judy, but she's the least realized character um, who feels most like a projection of Jack in the play. Uh-huh. Whereas like Howard is just like Jack hates him and we can see why he hates Howard. We can see that. And they're really the two kind of vying ideas in the play. So neither of those ideas is appealing to, to the viewer. And I think the, the only character who comes across as at all sympathetic and human is, is the minor character of Joan who's talked about, who you could see like, as a person whom you might identify with, who might still have some kind of humanity. Um, and I, I think that's like that's central to what Sean is doing is that he's not giving us a place to be in the play and and a place to feel good about ourselves about any of the things that we might identify with that the characters say, like we, we start to agree with them and then we feel loathsome about ourselves for having agreed with them about anything they say. Well, yeah, you know, we, we tried to play it this way. I mean, uh, Aaron Angelo who played Jack is a fantastic actor. He played Jack as a rather unctuous sort of sleazy character and a clown you know jack mm-hmm. is a clown and he's there's any number of lines i mean jack's monologues are a little weird because he keeps making goofy jokes in the middle of all this serious stuff and sometimes they're you know jokes that let him off the hook mm-hmm. um and but you know the, but then they're not they're not always you know at one point he is saying you know oh i'm really bad at sex i i had a woman say to me you know wrestling really isn't the 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 metaphor uh, and, and as he says this, you know, Aaron mugs this beautifully and the audience is pulled in beautifully. But I don't think of, I never thought of Judy and Howard as really being present in the play. I mean, I think they're very much projections of Jack's. I mean, it's Jack's Howard and Jack's Judy that we're seeing. You know, there's nothing naturalistic about their presentation. Yeah, I agree. I read it that way also. I read it as them being his memories almost after their death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Jack is, he doesn't like himself. I mean, in fairness, Jack is not sitting there saying, I've done the right thing, you know. Jack is, is saying, I've been a rat. Uh, I don't even know if he's looking for us to absolve him of that, really. I think he's wrestling with his guilt, and it's a play about guilt. It's a play about abandoning his friends. And I think he, he sees what a monster he is, and he feels a kind of a clammy horror about it. And, and then he sort of half-heartedly makes an not for why being a monster is good, but for why he did it. And I actually don't see him as all that different than Joan. I mean, got away too. Joan is pretty complicit with the new regime. You know, Joan didn't, didn't, she wasn't part of the uprising. She wasn't in the street. You know, she's got, I mean, when Judy comes to talk to her, she's got a, a maid bringing Judy drinks and taking her shoes. Mm-hmm. So I, I think Joan is, is, uh, I don't know. I don't find Joan that sympathetic. I don't know that anyone is sympathetic. Uh, you know, maybe that young woman that Howard writes about in that little book with the orange spine is sympathetic. Um, 
but I don't think it's shown. Yeah, it's it's always actually left pretty unclear what his what his politics were, and what form they might have taken. Yeah, vaguely cryptically left. I mean, you you assume he lives under a pretty authoritarian regime to begin with. Yeah, you know, you assume that it's not it's not as though everything's great. I mean, I, you sort of picture it's like, you know, when the, when the play begins, I think okay, maybe this is Brazil in the early seventies. You know, where the, the joke there was that there were two political parties, the yes and the yes, sir party, you know, <laughs> this idea of just uh, there's only uh, complicit complicity with the state and uh, and anybody who who disagrees. I mean, they'll just go and they'll just find you. And then there's moments of relaxation. It's like in Argentina when Perón came back for a little while, like there's moments where this is relaxed, but they're they're very brief moments and they're not enough. Anyone really do anything. He, uh, you know, when I think about the play, see, I'd come on here to argue it was a perfect play, and now I'm horrified. I, uh, oh, I, 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 I actually, <laughs> I admired what the play did. I, I, yeah. I thought it was a good play. I also wanted to argue with it, which is one of my favorite yeah. ways to feel about a thing. Yeah, it's, it's I, endlessly yeah. interesting, and so it's so, so good that, you know. When I thought about it, I thought about it in relationship to, you know, uh, only recently, in the last year, when I've been thinking about it, love letters. Do you guys know the play Love Letters? No, no. It's this cheesy tearjerker play that A.R. Gurney wrote. They do it in, you know, if there's if there's some place called the Pasadena Playhouse, they're doing it there tonight. It's uh, it's <laughs> it's a cheesy tearjerker play from '88 with these two characters on stage, and they're both at desks, both facing the audience, and they have a stack of letters, and the letters are the love letters they've been sending each other for 50 years. And as they read these letters, you hear the whole story of their relationship where they were kids who were fond of each other and he joins the army and she a little bit flirts with the counterculture, but mostly she just becomes drunk and he becomes a big uh, business dude and she has a bad marriage and kind of falls apart and then she dies. And uh, it's kind of like, it's a bit like Forrest Gump when Forrest Gump's I forget the name of Forrest Gump's love interest when she died. There's the idea that it's like mm. the, the counterculture has killed her. Sin has killed her, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. he, uh, and he, he reads his final letter about how she's always meant everything to him. And it just is waterworks. I mean, people just, just, just get soaked with tears at this show. And it was hugely popular in the, in the late eighties and early nineties. Not, it wasn't okay. So if we're going to use highbrow, lowbrow, right? Maybe not in the highbrow theater. Like one of the things that one of the popular things to do was they would do community productions of this and people who played married couples in sitcoms would play the two characters. So like the, the, the man and the woman who played the, the married couple in Mr. Ed uh, did a run of this show <laughs> or like uh, Terry Gross and I'm uh, not Terry Gross, Michael Gross and Meredith Baxter Bernie did a run of the show. Um, and it's but but the staging, I think, was was what was so inspiring to Sean was these two people sitting at desks facing the audience, it's a great play for actors to do because uh, you don't have to memorize any lines because you're just reading the letters. And so you can mm. put a production together in, in a week or two. And I think I have this uh, theory that Wallace Shawn saw this play and decided there's no reality in here. There's no politics in here. It's weirdly sexist, sexless. There's just this, this sense of these people isolated from history. And what I want to do, this is my... I'm sure wrong theory about the designated mortar 
is I thought that Wallace Shawn wanted to break that open and pour history in to this story of love letters. Mm -hmm. And so we have like exactly the same staging of the designated mourner. We have these two, you know, tables facing the audience. And we have these two people sitting there, you know, the tables are piled with books or papers or whatever. You know, Howard's little book has to be there because he's going to read from it. And, uh, and Sean wanted to turn this right. Quote unquote, lowbrow tearjerker into a quote unquote, highbrow tearjerker. Interesting. Mm. Add my one Wallace Shawn anecdote, just in case yeah. you want to use it. Okay. So this is my Wallace Shawn anecdote. Um, a friend of mine, I think, I guess he was working with Wallace Shawn for the first time or something. And they went to lunch and after the lunch, like he'd been saying, Oh, you know, I've never read one of your books. I've, I've always been a big fan of your acting. So Wallace Shawn took him to St. Mark's bookstore to buy all of Wallace Shawn's books. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they go up to the cash register and Wallace Shawn is like, and Wallace Shawn is going to buy the books for him. Okay. That was like, Oh, I'll buy you all my books so you can read. And he goes to the cash register and the cashier recognized him and said, Mr. Sean, you're buying all your own books. Hmm. Why are you doing that? And Wallace Sean looks at her and says, because all the rest of the books in this store are shit. And that was- <laughs> See, that's, that Kurt Vonnegut American Express commercial should have ended that way. All right, that was our episode on Designated Mourner. Thank you to John Cotter for joining us and Adam Bear for our theme music. Thank you also to everyone at Lit Hub for hosting us. We'll be back next week with a special episode where we t- discuss our impressions of our first 10 books. Bye till then. <laughs> <laughs>